bunch of, of staff. And then just joining the mechanics on the end here, it's Fred on the far right that uh, if anyone's been um, following MFA over the years, he was one of our first members of staff and he looks after the site from a facilities point of view. Um, and he's more recently been joined by a, a younger colleague, Flavius, who, and they're doing sterling service of keeping the site well maintained. Um, so from one sort of source of, of engine power to another, this is Mary, who is our cook, and absolutely essential, because we provide lunch for all of our students and staff every day, um, and for a significant number of our students, that is their only meal of the day. So um, a lot of them arrive on empty stomachs and wait until Mary cooks something up. Um, and... Uh, Key to that as well is Desmond, who looks after the grounds, which includes growing about 85% of the vegetables that they have throughout the year. So he's really key. Um, and he um, and Mary also quite often uh, put our students to good work. And uh, I'll tell you a bit more about that later. And then um, the students get the opportunity to work around the site to help pay, back, pay some of their contribution to the fees. Um, I got to see quite a lot of classes going on. So there's a full range here. So top left, we've got an IT class going on. So our students all have laptops issued to them on a daily basis. And they, a lot of, for a lot of them, they've never opened a computer before. They've never worked at a computer or seen one. So it's really important that we give them those skills because, you know, ultimately, if they end up working in garages, a lot of that, you know, is, is computer-based. There's a lot of electronics, but there's also a lot of computer-based work in terms of, you know, logging customer cars and so on. So they're getting those basic skills. And then we've got, on the right-hand side, they've got an an entrepreneurship class. So that's learning how to actually run a business. So some of our mechanics will go and be self-employed mechanics when they leave us. Um, and then on the bottom left here, we've got um, driving theory um, class. Because in January, we were able to launch the MFA driving school for our students, which is really exciting. And the um, um, we've got a car that they... It's got dual controls, so um, Madison teaches them the theory and teaches them to drive. And this is really critical. I spoke to quite a lot of our students who've graduated, obviously because I was there for the graduation, and the number of those people that said, I would be so much more employable if I had a driving licence, or I could be used so much more. So one guy was telling me about how he's got a job, which is great, but he can't go out on breakdowns on his own because he can't drive. Um, and so you can see that if we, if we can have mechanics that can not only fix cars but go and drive cars, they will be much more employable, which ultimately is, is sort of the aim that they can be um, um, in a position where they can support themselves and their families. So um, this is really exciting. So we're hoping the first few will go through and, and take their tests pretty, pretty soon. So this is just them practicing on some ground behind um, Guarneri's house. And then the next one I'm about to show you is a, um, is a very brief video of, the, of one of the worship um, things we had. Is it going to play? Play again. Oh, we've got sound. Don't worry. We can come back to it if you like. 
Yeah. Don't worry. Um, but I just wanted to give you an idea that, that praise and worship and discipleship and spiritual guidance is a really key part of Mechanics for Africa. Um, and so this was one of the praise services we had on the Friday morning. Um, and um, a lot of the songs are sung in, in Bemba. So although English is the kind of nationally spoken language, there are 72 languages in Zambia. And Bemba is the local, local one too, Ndola. So um, a, lot of, a lot of the singing was in Bemba. So um, I had Gwineri interpreting for me. But the song with great gusto. And it was really lovely because on this Friday, we had invited back the graduates as well. So they came back ready for the rehearsal and that sort of thing for the next day. So let's try again. See if we've got... Oh, no. No, it's not going to play. Play ball. You know, so it's, um, it, you know, the staff are Christians, all the staff are Christians, and they really um, live out their faith um, in their work. So here was um, just some of the lecturers. I spent some time with them. It was, they called it a book study. So they've been working through a, le a Christian leadership book and um, looking at different chapters. Just, so just every few weeks they'll meet and sit and discuss it. And um, Gwiniri's worked really hard on introducing this for the, for the lecturers because it's not something that they had done previously. Um, but what was really clear is that they had all read through it and all prepared for it and really prayerfully considered it. And it was really striking how committed they are to their students and actually seeing what Christian leadership looks like in practice, in their jobs, right here and now. And there were some really interesting discussions that we had um, as to what that looks practically for them. So I was greatly encouraged just by the, the huge commitment that these staff have and how incredibly talented they are. So you've got Madison on the right, so he's our driving instructor and, and, and lecturer, and then we've got Tushu, who he only graduated last year, um, and so he's, he's kind of a trainee lecturer, but lecturer, but is doing brilliantly, and is under the mentorship of Gift, who's at the end of the table there, so he's our senior lecturer. He graduated many years ago and then came and joined us as a mechanic and then moved into lecturing. And then we've got Belia on the end here, who's our entrepreneurship um, teacher. Um, and then I met Morsav over dinner in Guineri's house one day. So that was um, really great to do. So there's a couple of people you haven't met. So on the end, on the far end here, we've got Malamar, who's our student sponsorship coordinator. Um, and she and also um, Abigail, who's sitting next to me in the middle, they're, you can see they're quite young women themselves, but they are wise beyond their years, and they, they mentor our female students. So we've got a group of about, I think about eight female students at the moment. They do an absolutely stunning job of mentoring them and giving them spiritual guidance. And, um, you know, they might work in the office, but they are such an integrated part of the, of the college. And that was one thing I really noticed. It didn't... So often when you go into workplaces, there's sort of a bit of a them and us in different groups of staff. You just don't get that in MFA. There's a real sense of family and that everyone's working together for the students. So here we've got Abigail and Jacob in, in the office. So Jacob, as I say, is the accounts guy, and Abigail's our administrator. Um, and then, of course, we've got Gwineri, who's our chief exec. She's absolutely brilliant at what she does. I was continually in awe of how she flits from one thing to the next. And um, 
you know, she is fantastically pastoral. She's also pretty good at disciplining. She's, you know, really good at giving direction and encouragement. She just has to have so many hats. Now, one of the uh, particularly things I found quite challenging was going out and making home visits. So um, I actually went to see where some of our students live, and it's pretty shocking. Um, if we think we've seen poverty in this country, it's nothing compared to this. Um, so here, um, on the left here, um, we've got Isaiah, and he, he did really well at, at school, but couldn't afford college. Um, the local technical college in Nandola, their fees each year, are, each term, are, are 4,300 kwacha, which is about £190. We obviously have sponsorship that a lot of you contribute to, so it's a lot cheaper for MFA, but we just ask them to contribute the equivalent to £60 a term. So when he heard about MFA through one of the pastors at one of the churches that we went to in the compounds, um, he, he decided to apply. And so he's a first-year student. He's doing really well so far. He's saved up money. He struggled a little bit to meet that £60. So what the students do is, I, I mentioned earlier about Desmond in the gardens being quite good at sort of help getting the students to help around site. They have the opportunity to access our hardship fund for up to half of their their contribution. Um, and so this is why the grounds are so amazing, because they help keep the grounds, they help grow the vegetables, they help with the cleaning. So Mary as well is our cleaner is really good at getting the students to, to work. And so they quite often do that. They'll come in on a Saturday and it's also another opportunity for them to get a free meal as well. So um, but it's a good way that they can they can um, uh, pay off some of their fees, their contributions. But anyway, so we've got Isaiah who um, you know, he lives, he lives with his sister and um, her baby in this house that they're just standing in front of. There's no electricity. Um, they, sh they pay to have access to their neighbour's tap for, for um, fresh water. It's really basic. Holes in the roof. Um, it's dark. It's a two-hour walk to MFA every morning for him on an empty stomach and two hours back at the end of the day. And it's not walking in nice, comfortable shoes or nice tarmac pavements. The compounds are really rough, and, and the roads generally in Zambia are pretty bad. Um, you know, to get to his house, we had to abandon the car and walk the last bit because you just can't pass it. So um, pretty, pretty challenging conditions. Then on the other side here, on the right, we've got Solomon um, with his dad. We turned up, and his dad was just sitting in the chair feeling pretty rotten. Um, and he was just exhausted because his dad is a farm, farmer, but he pedals his bike two hours to his farm, does a hard day's work, and then pedals two hours back at the end of the day. So no wonder he was a bit tired. Um, and then um, Solomon, um, he, they're quite fortunate in that there is a second bike in the family. So Solomon can ride that bike, and so it's a 35-minute commute for him to get to college. Um, and the weight of responsibility on these boys is quite a lot. Culturally, they are expected as the sons in the family to provide that future, that hope for the family. So the opportunity for them to come to MFA and get those skills with the hope of getting employment is really significant. And, and um, it, you know, I, I'll, I'll share with you later about one of the news of, of, of a former graduate who's able to support his um, sister in going to school now. Um, but they were lovely and really, uh, you know, warmly welcoming into their homes. Um, these were just some pictures as we entered one of the compounds, just some of the stools that were available. 
sweet potatoes in season, so there's a lot of sweet potato for sale. Um, this was just round the corner from Solomon's house. These are houses that people live in. Um, and these are just, that was quite a good condition track. You could sort of drive along that quite, quite easily. So a real eye-opener, really quite, quite difficult circumstances. This is another um, stool. You just get, tend to get a lot of little stools up, just pop up and, and selling essentials. Um, I went to see um, what they call boarding houses. So these ones are only 15-minute walk from the college. So that's quite good in terms of accessibility. And these are just some students that have clubbed together and basically got a student house together. Um, conditions, again, are fairly basic. Um, I, think one of the uh, I think one of the houses had electricity, so they did have a couple of light bulbs and the ability to plug in an electric um, hob that you can see here on the left. And um, on the right, so the foreground is effectively their kitchen. And then in the back, you can see through there, there's two single mattresses on the floor. And that room was basically the size of two single mattresses. Um, but four men sleep on that. You know, it's really, and that's, that's typical. You'll have at least two people sleeping on a single mattress. So these people really need, need our help. So, moving on to graduation, really exciting day. We'd had the um, graduates turn up. Apparently they were quite a, a hard cohort. It took a little while for them to, to, sort of, to crack and mould them. But um, to the extent that Granary was almost a bit nervous, thinking, are they actually going to turn up? So on the Friday, we'd invited them in for the rehearsal, and you'd get them sort of swaggering into the hall and trying to play it a bit cool, as, though, as if to say, well, I don't really want to be here, but of course they do, otherwise they wouldn't have turned up. But by the... Saturday morning when we had the graduation, they were um, really excited, full of nerves, but just so proud of what they'd achieved. So this was just us getting ready um, beforehand. A few pictures here. Um, they arrived at half past seven in the morning to get ready. And then this was during the ceremony. I took a couple of pictures during the ceremony because it just turned into chaos about halfway through. We were singing these songs and the staff here at the front, here you see Guineri in her black and white dress, and the students were there. And the staff came down and they were singing this song and it was in Bemba, but it was essentially a blessing. And the staff were literally doing this. As they were throwing God's blessings on the students. And it was really powerful. And, and then just chaos ensued because this was in the middle of the ceremony. Everybody was up, all the students were up, all their relatives were up, and everyone was so proud of them and congratulating them. So somehow or other, Shem managed to then restore order and uh, got them all back in their seats and we continued. Um, and then afterwards, lots of, lots of photographs taken. We've got relatives milling around on the right-hand side there. And then on, I just want to include this one here on the left because um, the guy on the end is um, Madalitso, who is Guineri's husband. And he chairs up a charity called Wiffen, and they support widows and orphans, so sort of the little, the little ones. And this graduate on the right, Beatrice, used to be one of his little ones. Um, and this is one of the support workers in the middle that she lived with. And this was their first MFA graduate, their first person that they'd seen from being very little through to graduation, and she's got a job, which you'll see in a moment. But, yeah, so a really joyous day, a really, really good day to be, to be proud of them. But this is Beatrice on the right-hand side in her new job. So I got to go and see some of the students' in placements and, and new places of work. And Beatrice and 
um, Matthews were working at a local garage in, in Indola. And then before we left, we were then joined by two other mechanics in grey. One who graduated, the guy who graduated two years ago from MFA and the lady four years ago from MFA. So it was really good to see that, that um, ongoing impact. And the guy, as we were leaving, the guy on the le uh, extreme left came running out to us and just said um, to Gwineri, Madame, Madame, when are the applications out for next year's MFA? Because he wants his younger brother to go and he is in a position to pay for his younger brother to come to MFA. So it was just really touching and just so lovely. I just love this picture. You know, with the skills for life, we are giving them so much more than just the ability to become a mechanic. Um, and I lost touch of the number of times, I lost count of the number of times I had students and their families coming up to me and saying, thank you so much for what all of you do here in the UK. He said, it has transformed my life or transformed my son's life and that of the family as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I can't adequately, we, you know, we used to sometimes have that lovely banner up, don't we, that God has no hands on earth but ours. And I think MFA is a real po positive image of, and, and that in action, it's, it's God's kingdom come on earth, I think. And, and it, you, I can't express the impact that it has on people's lives. So uh, thank you all for your support. Thank you all for your prayers. Really appreciated that as well, particularly as I was going out first time. Um, and can we just bring MFA in prayer now before we finish? Father, we praise you for the work of MFA and how you've blessed its work and provided for it. It really feels part of your kingdom come. We thank you for the lives that have been transformed and the wider impact on families, that it brings your hope and shares your love to so many. We pray for Gwineri and ask you would fill her with your wisdom and insight as she leads the team. May you give her the strength to meet demands of her role and that your love would shine through her. We ask that you guide Gwineri and the trustees in seeking your will for MFA so that you may continue to transform as many lives as possible. We thank you for the fantastic staff at MFA and their example, a sense of calling to be there and to serve you through their work. Continue to fill them with your love, compassion and knowledge as they disciple these young men and women. We pray for our recent graduates that they would all secure work and be able to go out and make a positive difference in their own lives and those around them. May they remember not just the mechanical skills, but also the spiritual guidance they have received. Continue to provide them with positive role models to encourage them as they make the transition from MFA into the working world. We pray for the current students that you would bring them to a place where they are ready to learn all that you have planned for them, that they may experience your kingdom come at MFA. Thank you for all that you have given to us and for equipping us to be your hands on earth in this awesome way. In Jesus' name, amen. Absolutely wonderful. Praise God for that work there. So, <clears throat> we're going to come back from Africa, and we're going to go to Israel. And if you can, just for a moment, come with me for a moment to meet with those ten disciples. And they're walking along, and they bump into Thomas. Hey, Tom, you never believe it, but Jesus came to church last week. No way. Like, you are crazy. He died. He was buried. 
No, really, really, Tom. He was there. We all saw him. Look, guys, you must have eaten something bad the night before and had a group hallucination or something. Because Jesus is dead. It is over. Grief can do a strange thing to us and make us feel very desperate. And you're just mad. Seriously, Tom, Jesus was with us. He's alive. And it was amazing. Well, I'm sorry, guys, but I'm never going to believe it unless I actually see Jesus myself. I don't know about you, but I can really, I have got a great lot of sympathy for Thomas. Do you? People coming back to life and walking through locked doors just doesn't really happen, does it? So Tom is not really very odd in thinking that his ten friends had gone slightly crazy. And he's not going to believe it. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine died. And we buried her ashes at St. Martha's up on the hillside there, looking over the beautiful Surrey Downs. You might know it. And I think, you know, you can understand, if, if she was to walk through those doors now, I just don't know what I think. I mean, it would just be... I, would, I think I'd be speechless. And then I'd run to her and I'd hug her. And I'd be overjoyed. And we're told actually a few verses beforehand, John says in verse 20, that the disciples, it's a slightly kind of understatement, the disciples were overjoyed to see Jesus. Like, must have been amazing, crazy. Jesus had stopped breathing in chapter 19. He was dead. They had buried him. And now he was standing there with them. No other religious leader has done that. No other man or woman, no cult, no faith, no way of life can ever claim this claim. Only God in Christ has risen from the dead, never to die again. And these followers see him. And it is, I think, these days of Jesus meeting with his disciples are tremendously precious, aren't they? that he, in all his glory and power, chooses to meet with the ones and the twos. And then, of course, he meets with a larger group before he departs for heaven. I think they're exciting and precious days that Jesus is choosing to walk with men and women like you and me. These are real men and women, people with troubles and heartaches, just like you and me. And he chooses to meet with them, and they're changed forever. So we're going to look at... Oh, sorry, can you... Yeah, shall I just get it? Yeah, it might be a little bit easier if I just... There we go. <laughs> sorry. It's a live show. I'm uh, going to look at four things very briefly this morning. Uh, the f- disciples who were in great fear. Thomas, who is in great doubt, but that led him to a greater faith. Jesus, in great grace. And then how about you and I, a greater blessing? Okay, so let's see if it, yeah, there we go. The disciples in their great fear. Those disciples were huddled together in fear. They had met together 
the week before Jesus had actually met with them. And Jesus had spoken peace to them. Now, Jesus had given up his spirit in death on the cross. They knew that. And now he gives up his spirit in life to them. Those frightened followers. And he speaks this word, peace. Now, peace is a very prized commodity. Peace is a place of goodness, of wholeness. You're never really truly well unless you're in a place of peace. And we've seen this firsthand with our Ukrainian family who are living with us. Peace is something that they prize over everything. Jesus offers those 10 shaking disciples peace. He breathes peace. And really he's breathing forgiveness. Because really peace is when you're in a place where you are not fearful and you're not in a shame. Peace is a place of forgiveness. You're not going to be truly in peace if you haven't had the forgiveness of your heavenly father. Those disciples, they had denied Jesus. They were hiding. They had said that they would die for him. And now they're not even willing to have an open door. They were frightened of the authorities. And maybe we find ourselves sometimes locked in places of fear. Maybe we find that we are hiding. Maybe we're sitting in places of fear. And you know, Jesus wants to breathe peace into those places, into those situations. Jesus can make you more than you think you can ever be. And he'll breathe peace on you to begin with. He will broaden your horizon. He broadens the disciples' horizon to become men and women who preach his word fearlessly. A few weeks ago, I was praying with a lady and I had a picture of this little girl sitting on one chair in the corner of one room and the picture spanned out and it was a a room in a huge mansion and a beautiful garden. And this little girl was just sitting on the one chair and she had the whole house and the whole garden that she could explore. But fear was keeping her in that one place. And God wants to release us from those places of fear. Ask him, ask someone to pray with you that you'd be released from that fear. You know, when we become a Christian, um, we meet with the risen Lord. There is nothing that is too locked away for him. He will breathe his spirit on you. Do you believe this? This, this will change you if you believe this. Because when, when we're a Christian, we have God's spirit. God's spirit in us. We're no longer just physical, mental, emotional people that we were born with, born like. We're not just 3D, we're 4D people now. We're in 4D. We're physical, we're emotional, we're mental, and we are alive spiritually. We're Easter people, resurrection people, spiritually alive. And that's because he breathes his spirit onto you. Will you receive his peace, his forgiveness, his reassurance, his peace? Those 10 were still locking the doors, but Jesus comes to them, doesn't he? And he comes to Thomas. Thomas is doubting. 
But you know what? God is going to bring him into a place of great faith. I love the fact that Thomas still goes to meet with these ten. And I love the fact that the ten still accept Thomas. Because those ten disciples, they told him and he hadn't believed them. They could have said, look, Thomas, you know, you're not believing us. Just don't bother turning up. And Thomas equally could have said, you're just crazy. I'm not going to stick around with you anymore. Yeah? It could have worked either way. Let's be a church, a community, where we accept the doubters. And when we're doubting, let's not give up meeting with each other. Thomas is there. He turns up. And maybe he's hoping, I think deep down he's really hoping that Jesus will come again. Do you think he is? I'm sure he is. Like, oh, please, please come again. And of course, Jesus appears the second time. How gracious of Jesus to come again. And really just for Thomas's benefit. Jesus knows that Thomas needs to see him and he offers him that chance to put his finger in those wounds and in the side where the sword pierced him. We don't know whether Thomas actually touched Jesus, but he had the offer, didn't he? Jesus was giving him that opportunity, and that was enough for Thomas. Jesus is always giving us an opportunity when we look up to him. He's always giving the ones and the twos the opportunity to believe, to have faith. And Thomas is led to a place of incredible faith. If you can look in your Bibles at verse 28, this is how Thomas responds. Don't worry, I'm going to read it. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. Only God can bring life from death. Thomas knows that. So Thomas had come to see that Jesus was alive, risen, powerful, handing out peace and forgiveness. He had seen that Jesus was truly God. And actually, he's making the first full profession of the divinity of Jesus that we get in the Gospels. The divinity meaning that Jesus is God. Because he's basically saying, Jesus, you are my Lord, and you are Jesus, you are my God. And he knows that there's only one response to Jesus being our Lord and our God, and that is worship, and that is obedience and devotion. Thomas was giving up the ownership of his life to Jesus, you're my Lord, and you are my salvation. And I think every time we take communion together, we, we remember Christ's body broken, buried, and risen. Jesus knows, I think, that we do also get doubtful, and we get forgetful very quickly. And he knows that he needs to keep reminding us. And I think that act of communion draws us deeper to remember, because it's a place of worship where we remember Jesus' scars and his brokenness. He, he is the God with scars. Now, Thomas comes through that place of doubt, but I just want to press pause for a moment because some of us might actually still be in that place of doubt. 
God wants to draw us through those, those doubts and those uncertainties. And he offers us resurrection evidence. But maybe you feel that you're still stuck in that place of doubt. And I was talking to a friend recently who has struggled with doubt pretty much all their Christian life. And they'd written these three things down that I want to share with you uh, that have kept them from despairing when they have been doubting. And they realize that even in doubt, we have a choice of how we respond. And these were the three things, and I hope they help us. The first thing is pray your pain. Face God with all of you. Don't turn away and don't lock up things and hide things. When I doubt, I will pray. When I am disappointed, I will pray. When I am hurt and angry, I will pray. Pray as you can, not as you can't. So that was the first thing. Pray your pain. The second thing was accept the mystery. There are tensions in the scriptures, and and there's what my mum used to love calling dualities, two things that are completely true, but that just for our human mind seem they couldn't be. Accept that there is mystery, that there are paradoxes. Accept that there are questions. Be honest, but don't wallow or indulge in self-pity. Don't let doubt become bitterness or cynicism. And then the third thing was choose to hope. Choose to believe. Look at the evidence. Choose to give thanks. Choose to worship. Choose to pray. Pray the Psalms. Pray all of them, not just the nice ones. Because in the, far, in the Psalms, we find that there's praise and there's gratitude, but there's also lament and there's also complaint and doubt and despair. So we thank God for the Psalms, don't we? He's given us that hymn book of all the emotions that we are allowed to have. And if you're in a place of doubt, maybe that will help you to draw closer, to choose to draw closer in those places of doubt. When we feel that maybe God is distant or even unreal, remember the scars. The scars prove his love for you and prove forgiveness, eternal forgiveness. So we've looked at the disciples in their fear. We've looked at Thomas in his doubts, which has led to great faith because he saw Jesus. And now let's look at Jesus in his great grace. Jesus had risen from the dead. He had walked out of the grave. And by the way, the stone hadn't been rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away so we could go in and see. Jesus could come out whenever he wanted. So Jesus had proved everybody wrong. And in all this glorious achievement, who does he choose to go and reveal himself to? And I was thinking, he could have so easily gone to those Sadducees and those Pharisees and said, ha-ha, look, you're wrong, I'm right, here I am. Or maybe to Pilate or Herod, da-da. That would have given them a fright, wouldn't it? I'm right, I'm alive, you got it wrong. But he doesn't do that. He comes to his friends 
those friends who have denied him and doubt him and disowned him. And in their fear and in their doubt, he comes to them, his friends, and shows them himself. And he comes to the likes of you and me in all our locked places of fear and doubt and shame. And he says, peace. And I love the passage then. Because Jesus speaks directly to you at the end of this encounter. Did you notice that? This is incredible. Because he says that if you believe without even seeing him, you have the greater blessing. He steps out of the story in that room and directly into your life. I love this bit. If it was a film, not a book, it would be where the camera is on Jesus and he's, he's talking to the disciples and then he turns his head and he talks to Thomas and then he turns his head slowly from Thomas and he looks straight down the camera lens and he says, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. How gracious of God to include us in that room. We, we have a greater blessing. He speaks a greater blessing to us 2,000 years later. So the last point, you and me. Guys, this is for real. This is for you. This is for me, and it is real. Jesus steps out of the story directly into your life, and he says, peace. And he says you have a greater blessing because you believe without seeing him. Jesus has given us a greater blessing. He's given us his word. And John writes, I've written these things. I've made a record of them so that you'll believe and that you'll have life. Do you see how God has given us his spirit and his word here? He's breathed his spirit and he gives us his word, this record, rock solid word. And we're told in his word that Jesus' blessing to us is threefold. The first thing is that Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sin what you should be paying for, he has paid. And then we're told in the word that at the very moment now, he's interceding for you over the power of the sin in your life. And then we're told that there's going to be a second advent. He's going to come again where he's going to do away with the presence of sin forever. This is Jesus' ministry for you, and it's the greatest blessing that you're ever going to need because he's paid the penalty of sin, he breaks the power of sin, and he's going to remove the presence of sin forever. Hallelujah. This is our Jesus, our Saviour, my Lord and my God. Thomas lived some 2,000 years ago, and we've had 2,000 Easter days since then, haven't we? But he still serves as an encouragement to you and I, to those of us who haven't seen him and believe. And I think as Christians, we can be very quick maybe to, to label Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, don't we? And we're perhaps a little bit cynical of, his, of being weak and doubting. But you know, Jesus wasn't cynical. He came back to see him. He accepted him. 
And Thomas was then willing to be moved on in his faith. We don't know a lot about Thomas, but we do hear John actually tells us two other things about Thomas. In chapter 11, when Jesus is going to go and go to Lazarus, who has died, and he might be killed for it, Thomas says, let's go with Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll die with Jesus. So he's actually very courageous as a young disciple. And then in chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to go to a place. And Jesus says, well, hang on a minute, where are you going? I don't know the way. And Jesus says, Thomas, don't worry, you're not going to get lost if you stay close with me, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I love the fact that Thomas is very honest about his doubts and his questions, and is very devoted and brave. And it's without him and those questions that we, would, we wouldn't get those wonderful scriptures, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So let's, you know, we can't just say, oh, he's a doubting Thomas. You can never define somebody from one trait. We're complicated and complex. There's more to us than just one thing. So don't ever define somebody from one trait or from one situation. Thomas is there, sticking with those ten, and he meets the risen Christ. And if we're to learn anything about this, it's that our doubts can lead us, actually, to greater faith. And we know that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Friends, God has breathed his spirit on you and he's given you his word. Will you trust him? Charlie and I were coming back. I'm going to finish in a minute. Charlie and I were coming back from town the other day and uh, I don't know how it happened, but we decided to play this game of trust and I happened to be the one that had to close my eyes and I held on to Charlie's arm and, you know, it was really difficult. I don't know if any of you have done this, but... I so wanted to open my eyes to see where we were going. But I had two things that I kept thinking, okay, these two things kept me going. The first thing was that I was holding on to the one who could see. He could see the way. And the second thing was that that one who could see could be trusted. God sees the way ahead, and he can be trusted. And he offers you this witness account this record that John has written, alongside all the other biblical writers. Because John and the other disciples had been eyewitnesses. This is the key thing. They were eyewitnesses. They had seen it, and they, they wrote it. And they lived and died because of what they saw. This is a trustworthy written account. Every letter of the Bible is divinely inspired and there is nothing more foundational to the way which you'll live your life than how you regard the Bible. We're told in Peter, Peter was another disciple who we know a little bit more about and Peter said in one of his letters, I'm going to keep reminding you that these things aren't cleverly devised stories. These, we're telling you about these things because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is what Peter says. And then he goes on to say this. We have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well if you pay attention to it. As to a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Above all, Peter says, you must understand that the Bible, prophecy, everything written here of scripture didn't come about just through the, the prophet's interpretation, but the prophet was carried by God's spirit and wrote God's word. Peter's basically saying the New Testament, John's record, and the Old Testament, the prophetic record, they are reliable and they are true. They are the evidence. And you know, to make us really sure that we can trust the Bible, Jesus trusted it. In fact, Jesus lived his life by the word. Remember when he was in the desert and he was tempted? The first things that come out of Jesus' mouth are, it is written. Jesus faced everything in his life with the scripture. And he based everything that he did in his life on the scripture. He had full confidence in the scripture. Why don't we? John says that he has written these things down. And they are trustworthy. And when you believe them, they will bring you life. I think those early Christians were very much like us, weren't they? Doubtful, fearing, misunderstanding. But they do encourage us over the years to stay with each other in our fear and in our doubts, keep meeting, to look at Jesus, to remember his scars, to hear his word, to worship him as Lord and God, to receive his spirit and his word and then go out and tell a dying, doubtful world about him. Let's just take a moment, if you'd like to close your eyes, I'm going to just pray God's peace on us. Let's ask God to come into the locked places of our hearts and there may be some loved ones in your life that you also want to hold out now to Jesus who is alive for him to speak his spirit of life into. Do you feel afraid? Jesus says, peace be with you. Do you feel that you've let God down? Jesus says, peace be with you. Do you hear God calling you? Jesus says, I am sending you. Do you feel empty or inadequate? Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. Have you been shutting God out of your life? Jesus says, peace be with you. Do you want to know that Jesus is real? Then he says, touch, taste, receive me. Remember the bread and the wine. Remember my word. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Well, Jesus says, blessed are you because you have not seen and yet you have come to believe. Amen.